Please stay tuned to the end of this episode to hear a preview of suspect convictions covering the retrial of their subject from season one. And also, don't forget, September 27th at the Westport Flea Market, we will be having a Kansas City indie podcast meetup. Josh from Playlist, Our Americana, Karen and Ellen Letters will be there. I've heard that at least one host from The Varmints will be there. Gravity Beard, Curiosity Hour, and a bunch of others. So definitely come out and see us. Hey, I want to tell you about another podcast I think you'll really like. It's called Darknet Diaries. Imagine true crime meets cybercrime. They do really fascinating stories. They interview hackers to hear how they broke in, what they did, and how they got caught. Or they interview people who have been hacked. This is a show that really sucks you in, and you become glued to it and have to hear how the story ends. So open up your podcast player now and search for Darknet Diaries and go listen. Listen to Darknet Diaries on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your favourite podcast. In September 1952, Betty Shanks was attacked as she walked home from the tram stop. Brisbane was a city where young women regularly walked home after dark alone, but that would change. In the immediate aftermath of Betty's death, public transportation use went down and the use of private taxis went up. It was one of those cases that rocked the city and seemed that no one would feel safe until the culprit was caught. But he never was. Welcome to Insight. I'm Charlie, and with me, as always, is Allie. How are you, Allie? I am doing fine this morning. How are you? I'm good this evening, as we have our swapped time zones, and I'm winding up the summer, and you're getting ready for the warmer weather. So we kind of live opposite lives here. This case that we're talking about is an Australian case, and I think it's a little bit of a swap here because I don't think I ever take lead on the scripting for the Australian cases, but it's kind of a funny story. Allie mailed me the book for the case after she finished it because she was going to do the main scripting, and then she lost her notes, and it's just cheaper for me to script it than to mail a book back to Australia. So we both know the case very well, though, going into this. That's the joy of keeping all your notes on a computer, and then the computer blows up. So fortunately, though, I still had the book. So we're going to talk about the murder of Betty Shanks. It is one of the most well-known unsolved cases in Queensland. I don't know, probably outside of Queensland. Allie can speak to that. Is this case really well-known in Australia? I think it's more well-known with a certain generation in Queensland. I hadn't heard about it until I came across the book. But I think it's more of an older generation well-known case. And that makes sense, because in September of 1952, Betty was 22 years old. She lived in a Brisbane suburb of Grange, sometimes it's called The Grange, which it wasn't actually that far from the city's central business district. It was a working class neighborhood, and it was generally considered safe. Young women like Betty would walk home alone after dark without worry. And like I said, this crime changed that. 
On Friday, September 19, 1952, Betty had spent the day at work as she usually did. She met her mother for lunch. They did a little shopping. While she was on this lunch break, she was supposed to go buy some lotto tickets for some co-workers who had all chipped in on the tickets, but she had run out of time. Now, having Betty buy these tickets seemed like a really good idea because Betty's family had, just that past April, won a share in the Queensland Golden Casket Lotto. And it was a share that her father had paid for, but Betty had actually purchased the tickets. It was for £3,000, which would be like a quarter million dollars in Australian dollars in today's money, possibly more. The number is a few years old at this point, and it's a little hard to convert from pounds to modern dollars adjust for inflation, so we're just going to go with this number. So regardless of the exact amount it would be today, it was a decent amount of money. Betty's boss let her leave work around 4.55 to buy the ticket that she hadn't managed to get earlier, and she did end up buying the tickets. It seems like one of those tragic twists that Betty was sent to buy these tickets because of her luck, but she was the least lucky person in Australia that day. After she bought the ticket, she went back to work because her boss, John Doucet, was driving her to a lecture that evening. Betty had completed her psychology degree at the University of Queensland already, and she was working at the Commonwealth Department of the Interior. She was very civically minded, so being in the public service seemed like a natural role for her. She'd been there for 15 months, but she was still trying to further her education and she was taking a night class nearby that her boss also took. The lecturer was Edward McMilken. There was about 10 people in the class, including Betty, and Edward would occasionally drive students home or at least as far as to the tram station. This evening, he drove three students, Betty was one of them, and she was dropped off first at the tram station around 9pm so she could catch the 9.20 tram to Grange and she'd arrive there a little after 9.30. Now, we do know that Betty did get on the tram at the station and she was seen both alone while waiting for the tram and while sitting on it. No one saw Betty after she got off the tram, though, Another woman, Marie Patton, got off at the same stop as Betty and walked ahead of her. Now, they would occasionally take the walk together, but Marie was a fast walker and Betty a more slow walker, so sometimes Marie would just head off first. Interesting to note, Marie and Betty were wearing very similar red coats. Marie walked to her home along the same path Betty would follow, and she didn't seem anything odd or hear anything odd either. She didn't remember seeing anyone else around that stood out, except there was a man in a brown suit standing under a streetlight nearby. She remembered him later, but he didn't alarm her at the time. Two other witnesses also saw this man. The tram conductor did notice Betty on board that night, but he mistook her for another young woman who usually rode the same route and her name was Ina Hamilton, and we will circle back to her a bit later. 
Of course, Betty's parents were waiting for her to get home, and they were concerned when she didn't arrive home when they expected her. I have a 19-year-old. He lives at home, and sometimes he walks in late after work or school, and he was out with a friend talking, or they stopped to pick up fast food or something. I don't generally worry after 15, 20 minutes he's an adult. I mean, an adult that I financially support, but he's still an adult. But Betty wasn't like my adult son. She largely supported the family at this point. Betty's father, David, was permanently disabled from World War I. He had lost his leg. She also had a little brother who was 11 years old. Things then weren't like they are now where we have accessible buildings and laws against discriminating against people due to a disability But in the 1950s, being largely wheelchair-bound meant David's work options were severely limited. The family had, before Betty went to university and before the lotto win, largely lived off government assistance and even loans from family members. And it was a loan from a family member that actually paid for Betty's schooling. So Betty just didn't go out with friends after class without calling her parents to let them know what was happening. If they expected her to be on the 9.30 tram, she would be on it. That's why by 10 p.m. they were already worried. Maybe concerned is a better word, a little less than worried. Betty was known to be a slow walker. She liked to stroll. Even after dark, she would just walk slowly home, whereas if I'm out after dark, I'm like power walking where I need to be. So we're talking probably an eight-minute walk if she took it slowly. So her parents were thinking maybe she didn't call and she did decide to go see a movie or something. She had planned on going the night before to see a film with a friend, whatever reason she didn't go. They rescheduled for Saturday, but it's not clear if her parents knew the rescheduling plans. But by midnight, her father was ready to call around and see where she was because any movie at that point would have been done. But her mother, Elizabeth, talked him out of it. She didn't want to embarrass Betty by, like, calling her lecturer at midnight to see if she left class, if she had been in class. I mean, she was a 22-year-old working woman. She didn't call home. Elizabeth was afraid it would embarrass her if she did just, you know, have a wild night out at the movies or something. But by 1.20, David called the teacher woke him up, and he told David that he had dropped Betty off at the tram station at 9, and she was intending on going right home, so that's when David called the police. This case is unusual in that something we don't see often in cases of a young adult not calling home, particularly before the last decade or so. But the police sprung into action near immediately. They also called the lecturer and they called her boss. They came out to her house David stayed at home to wait by the phone in case Betty did call and the police took Elizabeth out in the car to drive to the school where the class was. The police searched the building and found nothing. They drove to the tram station and also found nothing. On the morning of September 20, a little after 5.30, a police constable named Alex Stewart went out to get his morning newspaper He lived almost exactly halfway between the tram stop and the Shanks family home. His house was one house in from the corner. His immediate next-door neighbour's house, which was owned by a family by the name of Hill, it faced the other road and his front yard butted up against their backyard. 
So when he stepped out front to get his paper, he could see the hill's backyard and saw the battered body of Betty Shanks. Now, obviously, he didn't know it was Betty immediately, but when he called the station, it wasn't long before it was put together that a young woman went missing from that exact neighbourhood. It's believed that Betty was grabbed on the sidewalk and thrown over the fence into the hill's yard rather quickly. The fence was low, it was a metre tall, so less than three and a half feet. But more notably, the sidewalk was higher than the yard by quite a bit. The difference in height from the top of the fence on the sidewalk was 28 centimetres or 11 inches shorter. It's possible that Betty was simply pushed hard enough to go over the top of this low fence. This difference in elevation also hit the yard from the street and sidewalk to a degree. Add in the darkness of the night and the shade of the trees, this was a more secluded spot than you would expect a yard facing a street to be. There were signs that made police immediately suspect a sexual assault. Her underwear was removed and her skirt and her slip had been pushed up to her waist. The front of her blouse appeared to have been torn open and her bra looked like it had been forcefully pulled at. But the autopsy would later indicate that there were no signs of a sexual assault and it showed that Betty was in fact a virgin. Like the signs of sexual assault, there were also signs that it was possibly a robbery. But again, this kind of came up short. Her purse had been dumped and the items were just scattered around the lawn. The lotto tickets she had bought for her coworkers were missing, and her wallet was likely missing. It's not known for sure that she had it with her. She didn't always carry it, but her family never found it at the house, so it's assumed she did. Her jewelry was left with her, as was some additional money. It wasn't a lot of money, the equivalent to a few dollars in today's money. The cause of death was found to be strangulation, though the attack was more noted by the savage nature of the beating. There was a lot of blood on the scene, so the murderer would definitely have had blood on him when he left. There were black marks on both of her legs, and these were believed to be shoe polish from the attacker's shoes. There was also an odd hemorrhage pattern, which was a bunch of little dots in a uniform pattern on her head. And there have been a few theories on what this could have been caused by. From my reading, it seems like a popular theory is that it came from the assailant's shoe somehow. One explanation is that it was a new soul. Before the great days of cheaply manufactured products, people used to repair things when they broke or worn out, like with their shoes. An affordable way to repair worn-out soles of shoes was to use stick-on soles, and the pattern left from this could be a shoe repaired in such a way. Another theory out there is that it came from a shot bag, meaning a bag that held shotgun pellets. Picture a sandbag that you hold in your hand and it's full of little pellets. It would make a pretty serious weapon if you used it to hit someone. I've read others dismiss the bruising pattern as just being something that happened post-mortem. It doesn't stand out to me as a very significant clue since multiple things could have left the pattern, but it does play into the theories of who did this, and we'll talk more about that when we get to suspects. 
As for forensics, no semen was found. Not that it would have made a big difference in 1952, but it definitely would have made a difference when DNA testing started being used in cold cases. Bloody palm prints were found on the top rail of the fence. They have been described as being rather poor quality palm prints, and this led authorities to assume the killer had left them when he vaulted over the fence after the attack. This plus the blood evidence around Betty led them to believe the attack largely took place in the yard and not on the footpath. And that makes sense because you would be risking witnesses see the attack if you did it on the path. If the yard was down further than the footpath, it makes sense that it would happen in the yard. There was male DNA that was taken off of Betty's clothes many years later, but it's debatable how helpful this will be. It has been tested against people, which we will discuss later. But it's unlikely her clothes were handled the way we would expect today to preserve evidence and prevent contamination. My personal view is it's just as likely the DNA found on her clothes is from someone handling them after she was found as it is that it's from her killer. One detail of the scene that seems like it's out of a novel is that her watch stopped at 9.53 p.m. When it was moved later, it started up again, and it seems like a sharp jostle would start or stop this watch. Of course, we don't know if her watch ran fast or slow, so it's not a precise time, but it does make it look like the attack was over around this time. Now, there are a few theories on how this crime happened. It's possible the person was known to Betty and met her along her walk. This would explain why Marie Patton had gotten so far ahead of Betty that she didn't hear anything of the attack while she was walking home, that Betty was walking slowly talking to this person or they had held her back. The man then waited until they were in a dark area of the street and attacked her. The place that she was attacked was heavily shaded, making it even darker than you would expect and darker than anywhere else on her path. The other theory is that the attacker used those trees to hide and to ambush Betty. Either way, it doesn't seem like a random attack, with Marie Patton walking ahead of Betty and passing by the man in the brown suit and passing by the trees without issue it seems like the person was likely waiting on Betty. This location was the best spot along Betty's route to attacker, and that doesn't seem like a coincidence. And it actually gives me goosebumps to think that Marie walked by those trees, possibly with the murderer hidden in them without her knowing. I mean, it sounds like it's out of a horror movie. As for the state of Betty's clothes, there are some theories there as well. One theory is that the clothing was to stage the motive of a sexual assault to hide the real motive. Another is that there was an attempted sexual assault. Betty either fought harder than expected and the man lost all composure and killed her before he could complete it. To me, there is evidence that fits this. Betty's underwear was found soaked in urine but not blood, yet it was a horribly bloody scene. It seems like she may have urinated in fear when initially attacked by the man and her underwear was removed and then she was beaten. An interesting theory that is out there is that there were two attacks. 
The men attacked Betty initially and fled. Betty, having wet herself during the attack, took her underwear off in a daze. This man, possibly because he realised he had just left a live witness to an attack, he went back to kill her when he realised that no one came to her aid when she screamed. And this theory will come up again when we talk about the suspects. We need to take a quick break for a word from a sponsor before we get back to the case. Question, can your workout clothes double as your outfit for a night out or even for work? Carbon 38 is a luxury activewear and ready-to-wear brand designed by and for the modern woman. You can transition effortlessly from the studio to the street or from your workout to your weekend. One of their most popular items are their best-selling Takara leggings. They have sold out three times. They are currently in stock with 11 different colors. They're going to go with any outfit. The fabric creates a leather look, but it's comfortable and breathable. It highlights your legs in all the right places. So go on their website. Check out Carbon 38 Signature Collections, as well as their curated arrivals from top brands. Check out leggings and tops and dresses and sports bras, but also don't forget to click that accessories button. That's what I clicked, and I found an absolutely gorgeous gym bag that I knew I needed to have and ditch that ugly duffel bag. Carbon38.com offers new arrivals from top brands every day, and right now our listeners can receive 20% off your order by going to carbon 38 com and using our code site that's carbon 38.com promo code site for 20% off your purchase and we do know Betty did scream based on multiple witness statements something like seven people reported hearing these screams but no one went out to investigate Before we judge too harshly there is something that's important to note about this neighborhood. The house where she was found is directly across the street from a school, and not just the school, but like the playing field area of the school. So it was extremely common to hear a ruckus from over there, even after dark, when teens would be hanging out and roughhousing. The woman who lived in the house where Betty was found heard two quick screams around 935. They weren't words, they were just screams, and she assumed it was kids at the schoolyard. Another neighbor reported the same thing. He was less precise with the time, just noting that it was after 925. Two screams close together. He did look out his window because they alarmed him enough, but he didn't see anything. And then the same with other neighbors. Two screams, sometime after 930, didn't see anything. And the constable who lived next door and found her the next day reported something similar to this except that he was asleep when he heard the screams. He said they weren't terribly loud, but they were obviously loud enough to wake him up. He too looked out and he saw nothing. The way the houses are laid out meant that his front porch, which was raised up, it completely blocked his view of the neighbour's yard. The neighbours did face criticism that none of them left their houses to investigate the source of the screams more. If one did, perhaps they could have scared off Betty's attacker before he strangled her. As we know, it takes minutes, not seconds, to strangle someone to death. This timeline of the attack happening between 9.35 and 9.40 is supported by another witness. A woman named Patricia came in on a later tram. 
She arrived at the Grange stop at 9.50, so she would have been walking past the scene about three or four minutes later. When she walked by the house, she did see something in the yard. She said it was something white. Obviously, she didn't think it was a person or she said she would have stopped. She just noticed something in the yard as she walked past and she kept on going. Now, knowing what we know now, this was surely Betty and the white was from her blouse. Patricia says that she didn't see anyone. She didn't see the attacker and she didn't hear anything, which would lead us to believe that Betty was at the very least unconscious. But to me, I would think it was likely she was already deceased and her assailant had already made his getaway. We have a witness who will throw some confusion into this timeline. It seems so odd. We rarely have a case where we have seven ear or eyewitnesses pinpointing the same time. So we have to have someone who throws it all off, of course. James Coates was a neighbor who lived on the other side of Constable Stewart, so he was two over from the yard Betty was found in. He didn't hear a scream. He says he heard more like a moan. He had finished listening to the radio and was in bed when he heard the moan, and then he heard a motorcycle backfire. But he puts the time at 10.40, so we're talking an hour difference, and he's sure of the time because the radio program he was listening to ended at 10.30. An author who worked on a book on this case that we'll talk about later looked up the program and it did end at 10.30. So we do have that confirmed. This leaves the possibility open that Betty was still alive but in bad shape an hour after she was attacked. It doesn't fit the theory that she was strangled at the time of the attack. So we're talking more the theory that she was beaten, the assailant fled, and then later returned to strangle her. An issue with James Coates' timeline, though, Someone's motorcycle did backfire that night. Elwyn Keeg had just done repairs to his bike and was taking it out for a test drive. And he told police his motorcycle did backfire, but it backfired at 9.45. So now we're back with that being in line with the attack happening, you know, in the 9.30 to 10 o'clock time frame. So if James heard the motorcycle backfire after hearing the moan, maybe he was mistaken about the time. But if James is right, it was near 1040, then there were two attacks. And it's even more tragic that no one explored the screams because Betty could have been saved if she was alive for an hour. I really don't believe that the two attack theory is correct. And that's based on it's a huge risk by the killer to leave Betty and then come back x amount of time later because unless he's standing around watching from afar he doesn't know if anyone's come to investigate he doesn't know if the police are on the way as i said earlier it takes minutes to strangle someone to death it's not an immediate thing and there's a big risk for the killer to take when the police could have just been around the corner i don't think there were two attacks i think this all happened in one attack and it does leave open just the possibility if James was wrong on the time, or maybe he did hear a groan and it was unrelated. There's a lot of things it could be. Maybe he was conflating two things. He was in bed, maybe had dozed off, and so he wasn't entirely cognizant of what he was hearing, and he got out of bed, and then the next day he's like, wait, I did hear a motorcycle backfire, and I heard this groan, and his brain just put them in the same 
time frame. I don't know, but I think this is an outlier, and I think it's much more likely that everything happened in one go. I think the majority of the e-witnesses do support it happening in one attack as well. Now, Erwin on the motorbike actually saw something as well on his ride. At some point between 9.30 and 10pm, he saw two people walking together away from the tram stop. One was shorter than the other, but he couldn't remember their clothing or even their gender. And he couldn't even pin down the time. So these could have been two people working together who attacked Betty. They could have been Betty and her attacker walking together. Or they could have been two entirely different people not tied to the crime at all. There were two sightings that some investigators have put a lot of stock into and others have put almost none at all. The first is a man in a brown suit. One witness called it a dark suit while another said it was a light brown suit. But the witness who said the suit was dark did concede that it could have been shadows that made it look darker than it really was. He was seen at or around the Grange stop. He was a stocky build, was of average height. He wore no hat and possibly wore a bright or bold tie. But again, with the shadows, that could have been light playing tricks on the witness. This man has never come forward to identify himself, which leads some to believe he was involved. The second man seen, or maybe he's even the same man, he got into a taxi. He was described as wearing a grey suit. Again, it was dark out, so possibly the colour is a little off in perception. What made him stand out was the blood on his face and on his clothing. It was an amount that led the cab driver to assume he had a bloody nose. His behaviour, though, indicated he was eager to get out of the area. He too has not come forward in spite of all the publicity surrounding the case. This is one of those cases, again, where the why would lead us to the who, and there are a few motives that have been explored in the years since this crime. The first is the lotto win. As we learned in our episode on the murder of Graham Thorne, the names of lotto winners were published at the time, and Betty is the one who bought the ticket, so B. Shanks showed up in the list of winners. Perhaps she was attacked because the person believed she would have a lot of money on her, or at least enough to make it worth robbing her. Maybe she was strangled when she screamed out, the attacker had panicked, or the assailant was angry when he didn't find the payout he had expected because it's actually unlikely Betty had much money on her. The Shanks family, as we had said, lived largely through government benefits, and they were in poverty and they were in debt. So the lotto money went pretty quickly. They didn't waste it. They paid off their debts, including their mortgage and the money owed to the family for Betty's university tuition. They paid for some rather necessary repairs on their home that they had been neglecting for years since they couldn't afford it. They paid for a surgery that Betty needed, something with straightening her spine. They put money away for Betty's brother to go to university. Now, they did buy a few nice things, and Betty went away on a vacation, but she stayed in Australia. It's not like she was jet-setting anywhere. So for the most part, they used the money just to improve their family life long-term. But the point isn't really how they used the money. It's that they used it. So anyone trying to mug her would have been disappointed. 
And anyone trying to mug her wouldn't have known that. They wouldn't have known that she doesn't always carry her wallet on her. They would have. They would tie the fact that they won lotto with her having money and possibly robbed her for money or jewellery that she may have been wearing or they thought she would have been wearing. I do think if the lotto was a motivation, it would have been more likely there would have been some type of attempt to rob the home or while the family was out or a home invasion situation. It seems like this was a lot of effort and stalking of her to mug her for whatever she had in her wallet. If they really thought they had a lot of money from this lotto, they would have surely thought it was mostly at the house. It seems far too targeted and far too calculated for it to be a robbery-related crime. Another consideration is that Betty was targeted by a boyfriend or a man who she may have spurned. Betty had no known boyfriends and her social life mostly involved a few close friends. And as you said earlier, Charlie, a wild night out for her was going to the movies. Everyone at her work and in her classes were questioned and investigated. There wasn't even a hint of romantic involvement between Betty and any of them. She volunteered at the Civil Liberties League and all her colleagues there were checked out as well. There was simply no apparent link between any of them and her murder. The only sign of some sort of issue with a man occurred two days before the attack. Betty's boss answered the phone and a man with an Australian accent asked for Betty. She wasn't in so he offered to take a message. The man said no and hung up. The same man called again a short time later when Betty was in. Her boss again hadn't asked his name and just handed the phone over to Betty. When Betty hung up though, she didn't seem like herself. To add to the odd nature of this, Betty didn't say anything about the phone call to her boss. Normally, if this was a personal call, she would have had to have asked for permission or forgiveness for this. If it was a work-related call, the call would have had to have been logged. For Betty to not say anything at all was unusual, but he didn't probe any further. She was known to be an incredibly responsible worker and not someone prone to slacking off, so he let it go at the time. There was one story that came out of Betty being in love with an unnamed married man, and we will talk more about this when we talk about the specific suspects because some people have tried to figure out who this man was. It's interesting because the quote from her boss was that she didn't seem like herself. That phone call could have been anything. I I mean, it doesn't see it's not like she was crying. It's not like she ran out of there sobbing or upset or she lost her temper. She just didn't seem like herself after the call. It could have been just that she was embarrassed that she got a personal call at work. Right. It could have been someone she did have a crush on that she didn't want everyone to know about. I don't really know that this phone call, while absolutely needs to be followed up on because of her murder, I don't feel like it's that significant to me. It's funny because I think there are so many little things in our lives that mean nothing or aren't related to anything. And if Betty wasn't murdered, no one would have given this call another thought. It is possible it was linked to the murder, especially since it only happened a few days before she was killed. 
but it could have just as well not been related. I mean, as you said, it could have been someone that called that she had a crush on. She could have been embarrassed because she did get a personal call at work and she didn't want to say anything to her boss to give any attention to her getting the personal call at work. It's interesting because now you can get a call log of incoming and outgoing calls and they could have found out the phone number. I don't think that was possible in the 1950s. But I think that given what's to come in the theories and if it was someone she was secretly involved with, the call could have been connected. But the problem with not knowing a motive is that anything is possible. Anything is possible. I mean, there is a chance it's opportunistic. Betty was targeted simply because she was walking home alone in the dark while someone was out prowling. I mean, we can't rule anything out. I do find this unlikely. The attack had all the hallmarks of being a targeted attack. We know of at least two other women who walked the same path shortly before Betty, and neither were bothered in the least. Speaking of the other women walking along the path, we are going to talk about Ina Hamilton now. We mentioned her earlier as the Betty lookalike, but Ina was 35 years old but looked enough like Betty that the tram conductor thought Betty was Ina. There was a remarkable likeness. Ina was a hairdresser, but she also worked part-time in the evenings as a receptionist for a doctor, and she normally got off work at 9.30 on the evenings she worked. She would then walk home. The doctor's office was near the Grange tram stop, so she would walk by the stop and then down the same road Betty would walk at the same time Betty did that night. Except on this particular night, Ina got off work early, So she walked by the murder spot about 10 minutes earlier than expected, so she was home and she was safe when Betty was attacked. One supporting circumstance for this, Betty had a variable schedule. She had class every Friday night, but sometimes she took the tram home and sometimes she got a ride to her doorstep by the teacher. And Betty didn't even know which one it was going to be until she was in class that night and he told her. So she didn't even have plans to take the tram that night. It was just a possibility of her various options to get home. So how would someone lying in wait for her know she was going to be walking home that night and not getting a lift to her doorstep? On the other hand, Ina walked down that street every single Friday night when she left work at 9.30. This night was a big exception to her very consistent schedule. And the reason some would put Ina as a more likely target was her job. She worked for a doctor, and that made it possible that she would have keys to the office, and in the office may be a store of drugs. This would explain why the purse contents were strewn about. If the person who attacked Betty thought she was Ina, he would have dumped the purse contents in search for the keys. I mean, there is a chance that the killer did think Betty was Ina... If they did look alike for a person who did see them both regularly and he mistaken them, I think it is likely that someone who didn't know Betty or Ina very well, they could have mistaken one for the other. And the motive could have been someone who wanted to get into the doctors to get the drugs and they knew Ina had the keys. That would all provide the motive that we really don't seem to have for Betty Shanks. Besides the spurned lover theory, that doesn't seem very well proven, but I know we'll talk more about that in a bit. I think with Ina, I don't know that this theory really holds up for me because the person could have pushed her over or snatched her purse, 
they didn't have to beat and strangle her and stage a sexual assault just to try to get keys for a drug fix. But I do think it is interesting that they looked so much alike, like you said, that the tram conductor who knew both of them mistook them for each other. And she had a more consistent schedule, so it was much more likely she would have been the one walking that path at the same time Betty was. So I think it's possible it was a mistaken identity. I don't agree that the motive is that strong. So I would hope, of course, that the police looked into other reasons why she may have been targeted instead of Betty, because the answer could have been in there. I know a lot of people were waiting for this case file to be opened because there's, I guess, a certain waiting period. I'm not really familiar with Australian or Queensland specifically, even their freedom of information. But I do know people expected the file to be open. It wasn't. So we don't know every line of inquiry. I think it's really creepy that there were so many women in that area that night. We've got Betty and Ina who looked alike. We've got Betty and Marie Patton both wearing a red coat. It could have been any of the three being the target that night. And I hope that the police did look into possible persons of interest or a motive with Marie and Ina because that could very well hold the answer to why Betty was killed. Yeah, I agree completely. I think it's maybe even just as likely that it was the one of the other two women who was actually being targeted that night, which is just unbelievable. I mean, this it, it adds a layer of terror, and those women must have felt even more terrorized than women in in Brisbane felt at the time. I mean, whenever there's an attack like this, when someone is just going about their day, they're just going home from work like they do all the time. I mean, it really sends a ripple effect through the community. And these two women being so close to it, I can't even imagine what that was like for them. Quick pause button for a sponsor break, and then we are going to talk about these theories and these suspects who have come up over the years. Hiring used to be hard. Multiple job sites, stacks of resumes, a confusing review process. But today, hiring can be easy, and you only have to go to one place to get it done, ZipRecruiter.com slash site. ZipRecruiter sends your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards, but they don't stop there. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invite them to apply to your job. As applications come in, ZipRecruiter analyzes each one and spotlights the top candidates, so you're never going to miss a great match. ZipRecruiter is so effective that 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. With results like that, it is no wonder that ZipRecruiter is the highest rated hiring site in America. And right now, our listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash site. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash S-I-G-H-T. ZipRecruiter.com slash site. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. We're going to focus, though, on the possibility or the likelihood or the theory, whatever you want to call it, that Betty was for sure the target. 
and we're going to talk about the major theories as to who would have targeted her. And we need to be clear at the top that no one has been named a suspect by the police. Some of the people have been cleared, even though others don't believe they should have been. Uh, You know, people still hold their suspicions. Some have been excluded because they don't match the DNA from Betty's clothing, which we already covered the problems with the likelihood the DNA sample's pure already. And various people usually put forth the same motive that Betty spurned the affections of her killer. But one theory covers the mistaken identity theory, and that's the theory put forth by Ken Blanche. And he's the author of the book, Who Killed Betty Shanks? And that's that Betty was killed by a soldier. Ken was one of the first people on the scene of Betty's murder, as he was the journalist of a local Brisbane newspaper at the time. Investigators early on did look into local military bases to see if anyone was out without permission or even with permission, but nothing came of this inquiry. Ken points to that odd bruising on Betty's forehead and believes it could have been caused by a canvas gaiter. And gaiters are those pieces of fabric that soldiers and outdoorsmen wear around their ankles for additional protection, and they sometimes have a strap that goes under the shoe to keep them from riding up. Many years later, while researching another case, Ken came across the story of an army driver who was accused of luring a 17-year-old into a vehicle just three months before Betty was murdered. This occurred a bit more than an hour south of Brisbane on the Gold Coast, and Ken believes the man was likely in the Brisbane area at the time of Betty's death. There is also an idea floated that Ina Hamilton, who was the Betty lookalike, was on the Gold Coast and may have witnessed something related to this army driver. Now, it's unclear to me exactly what evidence there is for this. I couldn't find anywhere in my research that discusses this evidence in detail. Kevin has not named the man. In 2007, the man was alive and living in a nursing home, but has since disappeared. I'd say he's likely deceased at this point, 11 years later. So it's hard to really discuss that suspect when there is no name to attach to it or really any background. And we do have someone who has a name and background that we know, and that's James Coates, the neighbor who heard the moan an hour after it's believed Betty was killed. Now, he's going to come under some suspicion because his story doesn't match everyone else's. The idea is that he was trying to alter the timeline, possibly to give himself a better alibi. He had a better alibi at the 10.30 mark. He was also a former cricket player, and that oddly patterned bruise could have been from a cricket boot, according to people who know about cricket. I'm American, so I don't know anything. But it doesn't really seem like there's much more than this innuendo. And James ended up living out the rest of his life in that neighborhood. Now, the next theory gets a little convoluted, so you're going to have to hang in there with us for a minute. Two days after Betty's death, well, like two to three days, a Dr. Donald Carter committed suicide in Ipswich, by cutting his own throat. His suicide was a shock to his family as he didn't seem to have any reason to commit suicide. He wasn't known to be depressed. He had no major stress in his life. His only obvious stress was a financial situation where he was trying to buy a house but didn't have the necessary financing in time. But then it seemed like his father 
was going to help him out with it or was at least had money he could have asked for. So even that was like in the process of being resolved. Now, of course, people can be depressed and their loved ones don't know it. But this made people wonder why this man would kill himself for no apparent reason other than he must have committed cold-blooded murder a few nights before. I mean, that's not exactly great evidence. There doesn't seem to be a lot to this except the timing. While one of the early investigators said that Dr. Carter had previously met Betty, the proof that they met seems to be missing. So we don't know if he believed this because someone told him or because he found they had a location in common where they would have crossed paths. This claim just can't be verified that they even knew each other. But there is one really big coincidence here. A neighbor and friend of Dr. Carter's in Ipswich did know Betty Shanks. A woman came forward early on and said that when she was on vacation, she met Betty and a married man named Leon Jackson. Leon was the married man it was rumored Betty was in love with, according to her anyway. This woman said she had been paid £2,000, presumably by Leon, to not report this to the police after Betty's death, and she believes that Leon killed Betty. We'll note here that, for what it's worth, Dr Carter and Leon Jackson were not matches for the DNA. They used DNA from their children for the comparison, and the children of Dr Carter are putting forward their own theory of the connection between their late father, Leon Jackson, and Betty Shanks. They don't believe their father committed suicide. They believed he was murdered, and the murder might possibly be because he knew what happened to Betty Shanks. Leon had, in fact, used Dr Carter as part of his alibi on the night of Betty's murder. He said he had gone to his mother's house for dinner around five o'clock. He took her to his house in Ipswich to spend the night. There was a morning wedding the next day, and she was going to attend with him and his wife. Then at 9pm, he says he drove to the local movie theatre. He knew the owners and wanted to ask them to babysit his children during the wedding the next day. He said he then went and talked to Dr Carter, and this was witnessed by a third party. I think this is odd to try to get a babysitter at 9pm for a wedding that is 8.30 the next morning. I would assume that they would have known about the wedding for some months before uh, the night before. Right. And the movie theater owner confirmed this alibi and said he was at the theater until 9.18. With about 50 kilometers between the movie theater and where the attack happened, there was really no way he could have made it there in time to kill Betty. But if what the other witnesses said about being paid to stay quiet was true, it doesn't seem like a stretch to believe that he could have been paid for this alibi. You have to wonder if after killing Betty, Leon went to Dr. Carter. They were seen together, so he couldn't later deny it. But Dr. Carter wasn't willing to take a payout to keep quiet, so he was killed. It does seem strange, as you said, that you would try to organize a babysitter the night before. And if this was some true crime TV show, it would be... uh, alibi of convenience so that he deliberately tried to organize the babysitter the night before so there would be a witness to say he wasn't in the area at the time of the murder. The whole thing with the babysitter and then the alibi and that the other part of his alibi killed himself supposedly like three days later, 
That all seems very, very odd to me. It really stands out because these seem like pretty big issues. But at the inquest into Betty's case and the inquest into Dr. Carter's death, neither one were brought up in the other one's inquest. So there was no mention of Dr. Carter and there was no mention of Betty. Another thing to note, the man in the taxi we talked about earlier who had blood on him, he initially asked to be dropped off in Ashgrove, which is an inner suburb of Brisbane. But he then changed the destination to a nearby suburb of Red Hill. It's speculated that if he was involved in the murder, Ashgrove was his original planned location, but then he realised it was too close to where he lived and that he chose a second place to throw things off if anyone checked cab records for that night. Now, who lives in Ashgrove? Leon Jackson's mother. That's where he told authorities he had dinner that night. So if I was to speculate, which I am going to do right now, I'm thinking that Leon brought his mother to his house and then left again. But instead of going to the movie theater to ask for a babysitter, he drove back to her house and parked his car. Neighbors wouldn't think anything of seeing his car in the area. He then took some type of transportation, likely public transportation, to the Grange, and he waited on Betty. After the attack, he got into the cab and initially said Ashgrove so he could get back to his car, but changed it to a neighboring suburb when he realized this mistake and then walked to his car. This sounds really compelling if I was writing a novel about the case, but it's just speculation based on one person's accusation and then me cherry-picking the details from other accounts that back this up. It's really easy to do, but a good story is no replacement for actual evidence, and the corroborating evidence of Leon's involvement does not exist that we know of. There are just so many conflicting stories and so much in this part of the story that doesn't make sense with the offers of bribes and organizing a babysitter the night before the wedding and then this person in the taxi thrown into it. I don't know what's going on here, but something seems off. If it is it tied to Betty Shank's murder, I don't know, but there is obviously something going on here. I definitely, in all the accounts we're going to talk about and all the suspects, this is the one that is just throws up so many red flags for me. So I definitely, with this one, want to know more, want to look into this entire situation with more depth. So if we're, of all the ones we're going on, this is the one, like you said, there are just so many things that stand out. It doesn't seem like the evidence is there, but again, it's unclear how much they looked into this line of inquiry, because like we said, the records are still not public. Now let's talk about another named suspect, Eric Sterry. Eric's name came into this with the book I Know Who Killed Betty Shanks, and that's written by Ted Does. And this story came out because of Eric's daughter, Desh. And I'm just guessing at the pronunciation here, Charlie did ask on Facebook, and that's the general pronunciation we agreed on. I tried, did try to find an interview. Charlie tried to find an interview where the name was spoken and we just couldn't. But anyway, Desh believes her father, who was horrifically abusive to her and her family, she believes he was the murderer of Betty Shanks. 
She attempted multiple times to tell police, starting way back in 1960 when she was 16 years old, and then other times in the following years. They didn't take her seriously, so she contacted Ted Dars about the case, and it's the basis of his book. He had included a brief overview of the case in a previous book, so that's how she knew he was connected with the case. Eric Sterry was a local locksmith who had been hired by the Shanks family to change the locks on their house when they were doing all those updates after the lottery win. Eric had serious mental health issues. He had been released from military service due to them. He had various diagnoses, including one, I think, for um, psychosis. Desh says her father came to believe he was in a relationship with Betty in the months leading up to the murder, or it's maybe possible there was some sort of a relationship, and Eric was the married man a friend told police Betty was infatuated with. The evidence here is circumstantial, as it is with any of these theories. The Sterry home life was a mess. Eric was violent, and his wife would leave for days at a time to party with friends. So Desh and her little brother were often left alone with their father. One night when her mother was gone, her father drove them to the Grange. He parked the car one street over from where Betty would be walking home, so basically on the other side of that schoolyard. She and her brother stayed in the back seat, and they were told to sleep while her father left, and she said it was about two hours later that he returned. When they got home, she and her brother were sent to bed, but she smelled smoke coming from the backyard. Likely fearful of her father, she just stayed in bed. She didn't look out. But when she saw him walk by the bedroom door a little bit later, he didn't have any clothes on. The next morning, he made Desh clean the driver's side of his car, both the seat and the carpet. She also had to clean his shoes of what she thought at the time was mud. Desh believes her father left her and her brother in the car while he went to meet Betty on the night of the murder. Either Betty spurned his advances or Eric was upset because she arrived home later than he expected. He attacked and then he killed her. Because of how bloody the scene was, he burned his suit, which was a brown one consistent with the witness statements, and then he made his daughter clean the car in his shoes. The bruise pattern on Betty's forehead was from the stick-on soles he had on his shoes. Eric was also the height in the build of the man seen at the terminus by the witnesses. Something a little bit odd, when Eric did die in 1997, one item of his that was passed on to Desh was his photo album. That album was full of family photos, but there was one photo that wasn't of a family member, and that was a photo of Betty Shanks. Desh believes he kept this as a memento. I think it's really interesting. Desh was like eight years old at the time. She had a very, very traumatic childhood. She went to police with the story starting when she was 16. They didn't believe her. He also worked with the police, not as a police officer, but his handyman locksmithing capabilities were used by the police. So he was known to them. But on the other hand, he was extremely violent. He had a long history of mental illness. And then that picture of Betty Shanks, just that is, I can't, I can't figure out what to do with that. That seems so odd. 
I also find it frustrating the lack of interest from the police. I suspect that may have been because Eric worked with the police and he was known to the police. He would change the locks at the station from time to time. So the allegations made against him may have been ignored to a certain extent. I do find the fact that Eric had the photo of Betty quite creepy. I mean, why would he have that? I don't think Desh would have made all this up. She was eight when it happened. It's something that would have stilled out to her. I wish they would test his DNA. They have his daughter. It could be easy to at least look at that. I know there are questions with the DNA, but it could rule him in or out of being a suspect that way. It doesn't seem like it would hurt anything to go ahead and test it and put this to rest. And I know that the book on this case, which is the I Know Who Killed Betty Shanks, because there are various books out there, this one goes into a lot more depth into the Eric Sterry theory and takes a bunch of pieces. So I definitely, if you're interested in this theory in more depth, I mean, way more than we could even begin to piece together, like, you know, we'd be those people with the the board and the string, it, just to make all the pieces connect, I definitely recommend you go ahead and check out that book. The last person being pointed to, to be named publicly, he hasn't actually been named publicly, but he will be. There's an author named Lyle Reed, and he has announced a book called The Thomas Street Affair about the murder of Betty. And in the book, he names the person he thinks killed Betty. The problem here is that he hasn't published the book yet. He said he intends to if he can find a publisher for it. For our purposes, it would have been a lot easier if he just threw it up on the Kindle for us, but he's hoping to get it published. The earliest reference to it I can find is late 2015. So at first he was holding back his theory, but it's been so long that he's had it finished and not published. He's given a little bit of his theory out in various interviews while waiting for publication. He claims his, quote, then-uncle killed Betty, and a lot of his information comes from an interview with his aunt, and this former uncle of his died over a decade ago. The man was a police officer, and he was not a very likable person. He treated people around him, including other officers, very poorly. It's not clear from what we have available the connection between him and Betty. My assumption is that's in the book. This theory sets out an entirely different scenario of the crime. The man was on a motorcycle and purposely ran Betty down. The mark on her forehead was from the rubber knee pad wore by police officers on motorcycles. Betty wasn't beaten. Her injuries were simply from being run down. She screamed when the motorcycle bore down on her and she was thrown and rendered unconscious. The man then immediately picked her up and threw her into the yard so she wouldn't be easily seen and he then left the scene. This scenario does support the two attacks scenario because an hour later he would return. He had panicked realising he wasn't completely sure if she was dead and not just hurt. When he arrived back an hour later, he found that she was still breathing. He strangled her, which would have been the moaning sound James Coates heard at 10.40. He then hops back on his motorcycle and it backfired, which again is what James reported hearing. 
that he staged the scene to look like a sexual assault and scattered the contents of her purse, taking her wallet to make it look like a robbery. He basically threw chaos onto the scene for the investigators. I will say this is the only theory that fully reconciles what James heard with his insistence that it all happened after his radio program, which definitely ended at 10.30. Others would counter-argue this theory being correct and that being hit by a motorcycle doesn't fully account for Betty's injuries. A question I'd like to see answered is... Why wasn't there more obvious evidence of a motorcycle coming up on the footpath? I don't expect Betty was walking in the street, so I would have expected a motorbike to have hit the tree, maybe torn up some dirt, left marks on the pavement, on the curb, if there was a curb, scraped the fence, I mean something. And I haven't seen anything that says that was noted in any police report. And you would imagine that would be something that would have been mentioned in a police report. Exactly. That's something that really would have stood out because you shouldn't be seeing signs of a motorcycle on a footpath. So this, I don't know, I maybe when the book comes out, there'll be more information in it that sways me the other way. But with this right here, I'm not terribly convinced. And for it to be correct, Betty would have had to seen the motorcycle heading towards her and then she ran away from it onto the road, which doesn't really make sense. And as the opponents of this theory do say, the injuries don't really make sense if this was a hit-and-run scenario with the murderer coming back. And hitting someone and injuring them is a massive throwaway from strangling them. The timeline does make sense if you're following what James Coates says, but nothing else does in my opinion. This case has also seen a lot of confessions, and they were either all proven false or they weren't backed up with any corroboration And as we've seen, it's also had a lot of accusations. Personally, I think it's unlikely to be solved at this point. And the murderer is almost surely deceased. Ken Blanche, that young reporter on the scene that day in 1952, he's coming up on his 91st birthday. Sadly, I think too much time has passed. And as we were talking about off air yesterday, I think I know you think too, Charlie, that the killer is likely deceased at this point. I really hate crimes like this because that even if we were to find out tomorrow who was responsible, it's not really fully closure. There still will be so many questions that cannot be answered and justice will never be served. It's just really sad to me that this beautiful, smart, wonderful woman lost her life just walking home from class. And her parents have passed away. So even if, like you said, we had an answer, the people who need that answer the most are never going to get it. We have seen so many cases solved recently due to DNA, but it's unusual to find usable DNA from a victim's clothing in 1952. If that DNA is not simply a matter of contamination, perhaps one day it will match someone's familial line and we will have an answer. There is a $50,000 reward in the case, the oldest in Queensland's history, but it's contingent on the arrest and conviction of the person or persons involved. The odds are, like we said, that the person who committed this horrific crime has already died, So even if someone solved this tomorrow, the reward will likely go unclaimed. But like I said, I don't have a lot of faith in that DNA. And sadly, the people who needed this answer the most, her parents, 
died without getting it. Thank you for listening. You can find us on Facebook at Insight Podcast, Twitter at Insightful Pod, Instagram at Insight Pod, or email us at insightfulpod at gmail.com. You can also support the show at patreon.com slash insightpod. And a special thank you to Chesgrave Music for our new custom theme. In 1990, newspaper reporter Scott Reeder found a nine-year-old girl's body abandoned in an Iowa school playground. I got to the school right when it was starting to get dark, and there was a police officer there, and the two of us walked over to where we could see a fire on the edge of the playground. We got about a foot from the flames and looked down and realized it was the body of a little girl that had been doused with gasoline and set on fire. The case has haunted him for 27 years. Did the police arrest and a jury convict the wrong person? In 2017, Scott Reeder and the national public radio affiliate WVIK launched the podcast Suspect Convictions to explore that question. Suspect Convictions soared to number two in the world on iTunes' overall chart and captured a top honor for investigative reporting from the Associated Press. The defendant, Stanley Liggins, who has been granted a new trial, will go to court beginning August 28th. And Suspect Convictions will cover every day of the trial, and provide you with the testimony jurors will hear, as well as some information they won't. I ran a second test on a different type of test. It's called a peak of tension test. I listed seven different causes of death. Well, he nailed strangulation. He reacted to the strangulation because he knew that's how she died. So then I went over and told him, that's the guy. Well, then I was a hero. Suspect Convictions is a podcast unlike any other. It asks the tough questions others fear to raise. They talk to witnesses. I was brought out of my cell and told I needed to testify or else I'd be charged with accessory after the fact. They talk to past jurors. I've grown up with black people all my life, you know, in Africa, and most of them, you know, they they can be, um, I won't say threatening, but, but they do it appear sometimes to be aggressive looking or, you know, uh, I don't want to sound like a racist or anything like that. They talk to lawyers. Don't be misled by dramatizations about circumstantial evidence. Evidence is evidence, and the jury is permitted and directed to give the weight that the evidence deserves. And they look at irregularities in the case. In one of the later post-conviction relief cases, it was determined that there were about 70 police reports that weren't turned over from the police department to the county attorney's office that had some exculpatory evidence. Suspect Convictions complies with the high reporting standards of National Public Radio. It will post daily episodes throughout the trial, as well as commentary and information that will never be heard in the courtroom. To subscribe, look for Suspect Convictions on whatever podcasting platform you use.